everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks, just like always. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And for quite a while there, for something like a year or something like that, actually, I spent the majority of my time working my way through a bunch of different miniseries, you know, because I follow a, a, a pretty... A, a pretty simple eh, format when you really think about it. Basically, I've got eight episodes, right? And six of those episodes can be used for whatever I want. The seventh episode basically features me and Chris Honeywell getting together and talking about whatever's on our minds at that moment. And then the eighth episode is always, always, always about Smallville. But those six episodes that form, I guess, the majority of the format, I can use those for all kinds of things. And so, like I say, for like over a year or something like that, I used those six episodes for mini series of different 
of different lengths. You know, sometimes they were six episodes, sometimes they were two episodes, sometimes three, you know, just fucking whatever. Bunch of different mega series and whatnot, and mini series and all those sorts of things. And what I've been doing lately is really been moving away from those sort of longer, epic, in-depth mega series and just talking about comics that I want to talk about. You know? And that's really been how I've spent the majority of my time lately, you know? So, today I'm going to be talking about the Burn Age Superman. Told you I'd be coming back to it at some point or another, didn't I? And not just any Burn Age Superman comic. No, no. Nope. Today's Burn Age Superman comic is actually going to be Superman Volume 2, Number 2. And... The reason for that is because I talked about Superman Volume 2, number one, with John M. Wilson, ages and ages and ages ago as part of my Batman v. Superman sort of tie-in series that went on for like 13 episodes or whatever the fuck. And so I knew I wanted to come back to this at some point or another, and now it is some point or another. So basically, I guess my history for... Superman number two can actually wait, at least for right now. Cover date is February 1987. Executive editor is Dick Giordano. Cover artist is John Byrne. Writer is John Byrne. Penciler is John Byrne. Inkers are Terry... Uh, Inker is Terry Austin. Colorist is Tom Ziyuko. Letterer is John Costanza. And editor is Andrew Helfer. The title of the story is The Secret Revealed. And I got to tell you, just like right from the start, this cover is very, on the one hand, it's very eye-catching. On the other hand, it's very 80s, you know, with this giant computer screen. And then below there's this little display that says in this sort of pixely-looking font, that it, it says Clark Kent is Superman. And... You've got Lex sitting there in this sort of, I don't know, spaceships chic, I guess. Spaceships chic. Kind of captain's chair, you know? Uh, sitting there just musing in silence over the fact that, you know what, Clark Kent is in fact Superman. So that's a pretty shocking, a pretty shocking uh, cover, very eye-catching. And this is something I can actually speak to, at least from experience, because I bought this comic off the shelf when it first came out. But like I say, I'll come back to my history with all of that stuff soon enough. As it goes for the uh, the rest of the cover image, though, the, the little display that says Clark Kent is Superman is not the only pixely-looking thing on the cover, though. There's this huge, kind of like that Spider-Man dichotomy image where you'll see in a panel half of Peter Parker's face, and then the other half is a Spider-Man mask. And that same sort of division is going on here, where you've got Clark Kent on the left side and Superman on the right side. And it, like it, this, too, is very, uh, very pixely, you know, looking. And I'm guessing that at the time that this thing came out in the 1980s, this would have been pretty high-tech imaging. Today, it just looks kind of like weird fucked up colored tetrisy type of shapes and i don't know i mean it's it's one of those things that you really need a little bit of context in order to understand just what the hell you're looking at so pretty interesting i don't know it's just weird that's all i'm saying so story summary is as follows lex luther has asked his researchers to find out about anyone that may have a connection to superman Amanda McCoy discovers that a woman named Lana Lang has been seen in background photographs at known Superman appearances. Luther has a team of people investigate the Lang angle. One of Luther's top sci uh, scientists, Sidney Happerson, distracts Luther and shows him the confined body of Metallo. He indicates that the mineral enclosed within Metallo's chest emanates a weird type of radiation that appears to be harmful to Superman. Luther viciously tears the green rock from out, from out of Metallo's chest, leaving the cyborg screaming in pain. Meanwhile, Luther has also simultaneously begun investigating the background of Clark Kent. He sends two thugs, Jenner and Breen, to Smallville 
to ransack the Kent house. As luck would have it, they come upon Lana Lang and bring her back to Metropolis. Later, Luther uses his influence and power to force Amanda McCoy to come to dinner with him. Their candlelit evening is disrupted, however, when he learns that his men have found Lana Lang. Luther's team keeps Lana drugged for three days, torturing her for information concerning Superman. But she doesn't reveal anything. They eventually allow her to escape, quote-unquote, and Lana drags herself to Clark Kent's apartment. Clark finds her and promptly goes fucking berserk when he learns what, what's happened to her. He flies to the LexCorp building and bursts into Luther's penthouse. But Luther's been expecting Superman. He's taken a piece from a tallow's kryptonite heart and fashioned it into a stone set inside of a ring. Superman is powerless against it, and Luther gleefully kicks him out of his office, threatening to have him arrested. As he does so, he whispers into Superman's ear a confession concerning everything that's happened to Lana Lang. Superman flies back to Smallville to check on his parents. Everything seems fine, but Martha comments that a scrapbook that she once made filled with pictures of Superman's exploits has been stolen. They have no idea that it was Luther's men who staged the robbery. Back in Metropolis, Amanda McCoy finishes extrapolating all known information concerning Superman. Feeding the information into a computer, the results reveal that Clark Kent is Superman. Luther literally doesn't believe his ears, refusing to believe that someone such as Superman could ever find satisfaction pretending to be a normal human. Lex fires Amanda on the spot. The end. So, what did I think? You know, I gotta tell you, I've said on previous occasions that I enjoy the Triangle Number era of Superman comics. I respect that era. A lot of really good things came out of that era. A lot of good things were done during that era. You know, it's not my business to criticize this. I'm not trying to talk smack about the Triangle era of Superman. I'm just saying that of the two, you know, I think I actually prefer the this sort of loosey-goosey John Byrne era of the, the Byrne Age Superman. There is just, I guess as far as creative fertility is concerned, I would put this era of Superman up against anything. Anything in Superman's entire history, before or since. You know, in terms of just issue to issue consistency and just the enjoyability factor of it all, you know? And this issue is actually a really good example as to why. Now, like I said earlier, I picked this issue up brand new off the racks when it first came out. I was six years old at the time, and I was really too young to really read comics. I mean, yeah, you know, I think six-year-olds, they may be able to read, you know, certain words, but they're not really good readers, you know? So maybe you, maybe I was able to read the title of the story, you know, The Secret Revealed, but just in terms of following the narrative, using the dialogue, really wasn't able to do that. And so really the only hope I had was, you know, just admiring the art you know, and following the story that way. And that's, sometimes that works really well, and sometimes it doesn't, you know? And this was one of those times when, I don't know if, if it's just that my head wasn't completely in the game or what, but I don't really remember being able to follow this story all that well when I was six years old. And there's really no... I guess, deeper meaning to that. It's just, that's, on the one hand, I didn't completely understand what was going on, but on the other hand, I knew that, even as a six-year-old, I knew that this issue was special. You know, this was, there was something about this issue that I just valued, and that was a, that was really about the best that I could put it. Now, whatever happened to my original copy of this, whatever happened, happened. It didn't last long because, let's face it, six-year-olds aren't exactly known for treating their belongings with tenderness and care. 
And so I'm pretty sure this this comic suffered a pretty bad end at some point or another. But it was locked away in my memory for a lot of years. And so I was later able to come back to it, you know, on this huge back issue collection project that I embarked upon as when I was, uh, I, I want to say like 12 or so. I, I think I started getting a lot more serious about chasing down back issues starting when I was about 12. And this was one of the ones that I wanted to pick up right away. And this, in a weird kind of way, kind of formed, you know, the foundation for my love and affection for John Byrne's run on Superman when I was six. But it, in a weird kind of way, it also, when I came back to it when I was, I, I think I was 12, it sort of cemented my affection for the John Byrne era as had never really been done before, you know, because I, the way it goes in my mind, I want to say that I picked up, as back issues, you understand, I picked up basically the entire Man of Steel miniseries and this issue, and I think also Superman number one, all on the same day, you know, because, I mean, especially back then, these comics, they were, I think, practically going for cover price as far as back issues are concerned. Now, these days, I think you're probably looking at closer to something like a buck fifty or two bucks per comic. So, you know, that sucks. But back then, I'm pretty sure I got these things for cover price or very close to it, you know? So, that's always fun. Reading this story now, it was, I don't know, it's, it was just like, in a weird kind of way, you know, it was like reconnecting with a, with a piece of the early onset of my childhood. And I really valued it just on that, uh, on that basis. But anyway... You know, page one of any comic book is really supposed to kind of give you some sort of entree into the story. You know, like, in some way or another, what is this story going to be about? And a good page one will give you some idea of what's going on in, or rather, what will be going on in this comic. And that's basically what we see right here on page one in Superman number two. It's Lex Luthor in what looks like a very sophisticated, and like I say, very 80s chic type of computer lab. He's surrounded by all of these giant monitors with all of these gigantic pictures of Lana Lang at, at different places. You know, she's wearing different clothes, and, you know, sometimes she looks drawn out and tired. Other times she looks pretty well rest, uh, rested. But she's in Metropolis at all of these different, you know, occasions and watching Superman do his thing. So... That is a very good summary of what goes on in this story. Who is this woman, and what is her connection to Superman? That's what Lex is trying to find out. And arguably doesn't really get all that good an answer to it. But in terms of what does happen in this story, I do think that page one is actually a pretty good representation of all of that, in as much as you could arguably view Superman number two less as a Superman story, and really more of a Lex Luthor story. Does that make sense? You know, I mean, when you think, when you start counting up the number of pages that Superman actually appears on in this issue, there really aren't very many of them, you know, especially to start with. And even when he does show up, he's mostly reacting to the shit that's happening around him. He's not really propelling the narrative. There's a, there's a degree to which, yeah, Lex is technically the antagonist, but this is really more his story in some ways, you know? So anyway, and you get a flavor of all of that literally right from page one, which to me goes back to John Byrne as a creative powerhouse, especially during this era of his career. You know, there's a, there are a lot of people out there who regard Byrne's run on Superman as his personal creative high point. He was never this good before. And he would never be this good again. Now, it's not really my business to agree or disagree with that. I don't consider myself to be an authority on John Byrne's career by any stretch of the imagination. But suffice it to say, I can at least see where they're coming from. You know, even if I'm not necessarily qualified to agree or disagree, I definitely see the argument. So anyway, that's all on page one. 
and really page two is basically sort of page two, pages really uh, two, three, four, and then going forward are really just sort of continuations of all of that, basically expositing what's going to be happening elsewhere in, in this issue, and then also maybe putting the, fin- the, the final touches on stuff that happened in Superman number one, vis-a-vis Brainiac. Not Brainiac, I'm sorry, vis-a-vis Metallo. And right here on page four, we get a pretty decent idea of just how ruthless this version of Lex Luthor is. Now, my personal reading of the pre-crisis, and especially the Bronze Age Lex Luthor, is that he may have been willing to take life if he had to, but it would be probably more of a of a self-defense type of a type of a situation, you know? He wouldn't necessarily do that just for shits and grins, you know? There would need to be some sort of tangible benefit here, and I don't think it's something he would do casually, you know? The Lex Luthor that John Byrne is working with is a little bit more cavalier about, and I'm using the term loosely here, about human life, you know? Now, we're talking about a living being here that scarcely qualifies as human anymore, but it is nevertheless life. And it means absolutely nothing at all to Lex to rip Metallo's kryptonite heart right out of his chest, you know? And that for all anybody knows, this could have killed Metallo, and that clearly was not a deterrent for Lex. And it speaks to that extra degree of ruthlessness that this era of Lex, I think, was famous for. You know, he doesn't necessarily get any joy out of it, but he has no real regret about it. He got what he wanted. That's what matters, you know? And he just so casually uh, tosses this huge chunk of kryptonite to Happerson. And to him, the fact that Metallo may be dead as a direct result of his actions, either that hasn't crossed his mind or he's just not affected by it, you know? So it's just, when you think about it, you know, guys like this, to me, these are the scariest people in the world. I mean, I've met people that I would categorize as evil, you know? I, I do believe that I've met people who are truly evil, you know? But some of the scariest people in life that you'll ever meet are the ones that they're not good, and they're not really specifically evil. They're just completely amoral. They do whatever they want, whatever they believe is right for them. And they don't really have any sort of a guiding philosophy. Because say whatever you want about evil, <clears throat> at least they have a guiding philosophy. I mean, there's a weird, fucked up, twisted morality that they, op- that, that they operate off of. But they do still have it. The, the completely amoral types... You never know what they're going to do. And they have, like I say, just no guiding principles that define their actions, you know, that, that guide them as people, you know. And to me, that's what's scary, you know, whenever you truly don't believe in nothing, or rather, when you truly don't believe in anything, you know. That's fucking scary to me, you know. And I always regarded this version of, of Lex as being specifically amoral, you know? The Lex of the pre-crisis era, he was evil, and I think he thought of himself as the good guy. The Burn Age, Lex Luthor, he's... he's amoral and enjoys being amoral. I mean, if anything, you could almost more readily categorize this guy as a little bit of a hedonist. I don't know. It's... This to me is is what's is is what's really unnerving in life, and that's the point. So, anyway, one of the things that's happening though here on page five, and then continuing through to page six, is that the Kents have survived into Superman's adulthood, but especially at the time, I don't know that readers would have necessarily had any type of solid guarantee that the Kents are going to be around for any great length of time. Who's to say that, you know, something isn't going to happen and they may not die somehow? 
you know? And so what I want to believe is that, and one can't really go back in time and find out what, I don't know, contemporaneous audiences thought, but what I think we were, or, or what I think John Byrne wanted readers, contemporaneous readers who bought this issue when it came out, wanted them to wonder that, you know what, maybe the Kents were murdered in this issue by Lex Luthor, you know? Maybe what the uh, these two thugs, Breen and Jenner, what they shot the Kents with, killed them. And... I don't know. That's what I, I want to. I, I think that's what we're supposed to worry about as we read this issue, because we basically get a few a few panels of Jonathan and Martha, and then they're basically gone for the rest of the issue. And I think we're supposed to worry about their fate. So you know, maybe maybe they really will die. That I think is what is what Byrne was up to. So. Anyway, so moving further ahead in the story, this is uh, page eight. Basically, this is Lex and uh, Lex's date with Amanda McCoy, and it's it's manifestly clear that Amanda McCoy doesn't want to be here. She's really only she's really only here because she's in fear of her career and possibly her life if she shoots Lex down decides that she doesn't want to go on this date. And so there's... Honestly... You kind of got to figure this is not the first time Lex has done something like this, you know? Bossed people around in this way. And... Again, it just kind of speaks to his amorality that... Guys like this that just regard other people, if you take my meaning as playthings, that to me is really scary. I mean, to him, Metallo was not a living, breathing person. He was in possession of something Lex wanted. So Lex literally ripped his heart out of his chest. And not to put too fine a point on it, but Amanda McCoy has something that Lex wants to you know, you guys, I'm sure you have imaginations. You know what I'm talking about. And it doesn't matter to Lex that, you know, she has the right, the moral right as a person to say, you know what? No, thanks. I'm not interested in you. She has the moral right to do that. And he denies her that. You know, he takes away that aspect of her free will. And also her freedom of mobility. I mean, she's not officially kidnapped, but she may as well be. She's not officially raped, but she may as well be, you know? And Lex doesn't see a problem with any of that. He's getting what he wants, and that's what matters. And like I say, those are the scariest fucking people in the entire world, you know? Because, like I say, if somebody is just dedicated to evil, say whatever you want about them, at least you know where you stand with guys like that. People like Lex, you never know. So... Anyway, and again, it, when Lex finds out that his men have kidnapped Lana Lang, again, now we're talking about not the sort of unofficial, but nevertheless very real kidnapping he did of Amanda McCoy for their date. This is just fucking straight up kidnapping, you know? And then Gretchen Kelly warns Lex that the, the drugs that they've been using on Lana could kill her. And again, he doesn't seem to care. If she dies, she dies. Who gives a shit? I need to get what I want, and that's what matters. You know, and again, just fucking scary. You know, like I say, guys like this are the... It's not necessarily that, you know, Lex is the head of a big corporation, and that's what makes him scary. No, he... I mean, he's got a lot of wealth and power and influence, and... But if it was, if he was the president, then he'd be the president. Or if it was, if he was a senator, he'd be the senator. You know, it doesn't matter what his occupation is. Guys like this will use whatever power and resources they have 
to pl basically to please themselves and if they have to step on other people in order to do it they're willing to do it and again it's it doesn't matter if they're the head of a corporation or the head of state it's all the same guys like this will always exploit their power that's the point you know and the fact that you know an innocent person who has done nothing to harm him could die as a result of the drugs that he's using on her it just it's like it just doesn't affect him you know he's not bothered by that and like i say i'm not trying to beat this to death but that's fucking scary you know anyway so that's page nine page 10 is when superman finally shows up in his own comic and we kind of get a little bit of a it's not a like a major action scene but we get a little bit of an action scene here Superman is swooping around through Metropolis and basically thinking to himself that it looks like he's back to normal, which for him is a completely relative thing, but it, he's, it looks like he's basically back to normal after being exposed to kryptonite in the last issue. And out of nowhere, he finds that he's being pursued by a sort of flying sort of webcam looking thing. And he tries to evade it but he just can't get he, he can't stay too far too far ahead of it he realizes that it's a camera though so he basically and this is a this is a concept we didn't really see a whole lot of uh during the burn age but it's basically we see this sort of close-up from the camera's point of view of superman and he's vibrating his face so that the camera can't get a clear look at him. You know, this is on page 11. And honestly, this is one of those things that Byrne didn't really experiment with a whole lot. But it wasn't talked about a whole lot. It wasn't made a major feature of... I guess this, this vintage of Superman. It didn't come up all that often. Actually, hold on. I want to get it sip off of my water here <clears throat> sorry guys it's just it's all this talking you know got a little bit of a dry throat here anyway <clears throat> so we didn't really see um you know a ton of this whole you know face vibration thing but it's kind of weird how you know, Byrne was a little bit prescient with all of this in the 1980s that, you know, the idea of facial recognition software. Well, this power that Superman is using here, this, you know, face vibration thing, would foil that, you know? You wouldn't be able to tie Superman in with Clark Kent. Now, and Batman v Superman, obviously Lex Luthor has no trouble figuring that much out for himself. And this is one of those things about the Superman legend, for lack of a better word, that, you know, I think needs some kind of an update. You know, in order for him to live in the modern world and maintain a secret identity as the mythos says he must, there needs to be something that would basically protect his identity, you know? There needs to be something that is going to prevent modern technology from unmasking Clark Kent as Superman, you know? And one option is this burn idea of Superman vibrating his face so that cameras just can't get all that good a look at Superman. That's one possibility. But another possibility is I think actually a little bit more prosaic in that you could just set up that Superman's outfit comes from Krypton and his his suit uses some kind of Kryptonian technology that basically sends a lens flare into all camera lenses so that Superman's face is always I don't know it's always it's like it's glowing or something so that it's it's always blotted out in in video footage or in still photos or just whatever so that you know people can recognize him 
as Superman on the one hand, but you really wouldn't be able to use facial recognition software against him, you know? And that's just an idea I just pulled out of my ass just off the top of my head. I'm not saying that that's definitely what you need to do, but there needs to be something with Superman that can foil modern day technology, you know? Somehow he can, he can maintain his secret identity. And I think that's, you know, one way of doing it. Another way, obviously, is vibrating his face. So, either way. So, <sighs> Superman basically runs out of ideas, so he buys out somebody's uh, stock of balloons and uses, basically releases the balloons in order to, to uh, confuse the um, sensors on this flying webcam. Snatches the webcam out of midair, at which time it detonates right in his face. And that's it for the webcam, right? Flies back to uh, his apartment, and then, this is page 13, well, actually on page 14, he finds Lana Lang uh, hiding in the, the, uh, the janitor's supply closet, scared out of her mind, and she's had a really bad allergic reaction to uh, the drugs that Lex Luthor has given her. Also looks like she's had the shit beaten out of her as well. Basically, it comes out that somebody, we don't know who, kidnapped and tortured her so that she would give up information about Superman. And Clark basically says that, you know, you should have told him. I mean, my secret isn't worth you having to suffer in this way. And Lana's answer to that is, no, you're wrong, Clark. You're more important than me, more important to the world. And I got to tell you guys, you know, this didn't last forever, but there really was a point when I kind of considered myself to be a little bit of a Clark Lana shipper, for lack of a better word. And the reason for that was, especially in this vintage of Superman's history, I think there's a very strong argument that Lana, she related to Clark and to Superman in ways that Lois just wouldn't, you know? Lana was there literally from the get-go in Clark's life. She was always there for him. She always had his back. And she always loved him. And she loved him for who he is. You know? The guy Clark. And I'm not trying to make it sound as though that, you know, Lois is some type of a Superman groupie. I don't mean it like that. I mean, I think there are times in her history when she's kind of guilty of that. But at least in the modern era... I don't really think you can accurately call Lois a Superman groupie, but you really can't say that about Lana, especially during this era of Superman's publishing history. And, you know, when I would read issues like this, it just kind of, and then I would read other issues that were more Lois-centric, I just kind of had to wonder, number one, what the fuck does Clark see in Lois? Number one. But number two, I mean... Everything that this guy wants in life, that's Lana, man. And it just, it didn't really make sense to me that Clark wouldn't fall in love with her, you know? That just didn't scan for me, you know? So, and it was just moments like this where, you know, Lana, on the one hand, she loves Clark, but she loves Clark enough to let him go, you know? Her view is that what Superman means to the human race is ultimately worth more than how Lana Lang feels about Clark Kent. And I kind of like that dichotomy, you know? And I just, I think that this is actually one of the great missed opportunities in Superman's publishing history. What might have been if Byrne had indulged this a little bit more? So I don't know. We'll never know. There's no way to know. I just think that, you know, there's a lot of dramatic potential here that just ended up getting left on the table, you know? And it's it's just unfortunate. So anyway, getting into page 15, this is basically the morning after we can surmise all of this stuff that's been happening, you know, with Superman uh, finding Lana and all that. All of this happens the morning after Lex's date with Amanda McCoy. Because at the Luther penthouse, we have 
we've basically got Lex and Amanda enjoying breakfast and basically looking like they've just gotten out of bed. And again, I mean, guys, you can kind of figure what happened between Lex and Amanda last night, you know? And it's... This is just sick, you know? It's, you know... I, Look, Byrne doesn't really indulge anything here. I mean, if you want Lex to have basically raped Amanda the night before, he did. But if you just have got to believe that even Lex isn't that big a son of a bitch, then, you know, you've got some kind of a deniability here. But I think it's pretty obvious that Lex basically bullied his way into Amanda's pants, right? And this is just, this guy is just a sick fuck of a human being, you know? And it's on the one hand, you look at this stuff and it makes your skin crawl, but like in a good way, because I mean, guys, he's the fucking bad guy, you know? You're not really supposed to admire him, you know? So anyway, it's just, but even that, I mean, this is just fucking sick. This is just really twisted. So anyway, I, I, I can't even talk about this and anyway, I just, I got to move on. So anyway, bottom of page 15, what we basically see is Superman, going back to the facility from which Lana escaped, he hasn't necessarily tied this in with Lex Luthor yet. He just basically goes back to Lana's last known location, swoops in and finds Breen and Jenner there, and basically is about to kick some serious ass when Lex, needing to cover his own tracks, uh, he basically blows this place sky high, right? And... He needs to basically cover his tracks. He needs to destroy the evidence that may be at this holding facility for all anybody knows. But guys, Breen and Jenner, they're loose ends. Lex doesn't like loose ends. And we've already seen that he's pretty willing to take life earlier in this issue. What, are Breen and Jenner somehow fucking protected from all of that? I don't think so. So... The building goes kerbloom. And I got to tell you guys, when I was watching Batman v Superman, I kind of had to wonder, did this little moment here somewhat influence that that bit where Superman testifies in front of that Senate committee and then Lex blows the place to pieces? Because it's a kind of a similar idea when you think about it. Superman goes someplace... Lex sets off a bomb, knowing that it's going to kill the people inside, but also knowing that Superman's going to escape unscathed. And, you know, it's not exactly a literal adaptation of this scene, but there are some similarities to it, you know? And it just, it just sort of made me wonder, is that, is that what Zack Snyder was influenced by, you know, for that little bit in Batman v Superman. And I don't know. I don't know if he's ever actually said so in public. But anyway, so we get into uh, we get into page 17 where Superman storms LexCorp. And at the very top of page 17, you, you know, you can see these, uh, these uh, LexCorp staffers. And you can tell that Probably most of them at this point, they need a new pair of shorts because Superman on on the rampage has got to be a pretty fucking scary thing for them. And, you know, when you think about it, they don't know why Superman's there. They don't know what's what's happening. They don't know why Superman's tearing shit up. They just know that Superman's there. He's fucking pissed. He's breaking stuff. And that's got to be the scariest fucking thing they can possibly imagine, you know? So anyway... Superman and Lex have it out in the the LexCorp office, and in short order, Lex gets the drop on Superman with the kryptonite ring, and this is power. You know, guys like Lex get off on having power. Controlling things, controlling events, controlling people, you know? That's their thing. And... 
for Lex, this would have to be a dream come true. You know, he's finally found a way to shut Superman down. Superman can't get near Lex Luthor, and Lex Lex Luthor lets him. He would fucking eat that up with a spoon. And again, I mean, Lex is a sick, twisted guy in these stories. And what you, what you need to remember is that that sort of hedonist thing of power for power's sake, you know, always being the one in control. That's Lex Luthor in the Burn Age. And that's who he is on every single fucking page of this issue, you know? And again, it just kind of speaks to the fact that this is arguably more Lex's story than it is Superman's because Superman doesn't really do a whole lot to drive the narrative here. He reacts to the things that are happening around him, but he doesn't really assert himself that much. Lex does more to propel the story in this issue than Superman does. So anyway, Superman at the bottom of page 18 reveals or realizes that at least for the moment, he's basically defeated. So page 19, we see him flying Lana back to Smallville, back to the Kent house. And he's basically expecting, you can tell by the way that he's talking to Lana, he's kind of got this sort of extended monologue here about what exactly it is that the Kents have done for him. And he's talking about them in the past tense. I mean, you can't really shake the idea that he's expecting to have to mourn for and have funerals for Jonathan and Martha. So imagine his surprise to find out they're alive and well. And I think that was supposed to be sort of a twist, you know, it, a, a reveal of the story that Byrne was basically playing with contemporary, uh, contemporaneous audiences. What they were expecting from this version of Lex. And on some level, I think Byrne knew that a lot of readers were expecting the Kents to die, so he would play with that, but never quite indulged it, you know? And that's, I don't know, that's just really clever, you know? I mean, it's one of those things, it doesn't hold up quite as well if you read this as a back issue, but reading this at the time that it came out, hand on heart, that's the way I think Byrne wanted you to react to it, you know? He wanted you to worry about whether or not the Kents are dead or alive, you know? And that's just really solid, really powerful writing. But the main thing that comes out of this is that Lex stole things that are really more of sentimental value from the Kent house, you know? Things like birth certificates, yearbooks, uh, photo albums, you know, things like that, scrapbooks. What the fuck could he possibly want with something like that? And the reader kind of has an insight into where this might be going but starting right here on page 21 this is when really all the chickens come home to roost and the cover of this issue somewhat finds fulfillment right basically amanda mccoy plugs all of the data that they that breen and jenner were able to collect from the Kent house into her computer and basically it's supposed to explain what if any connection exists between Clark Kent and Superman and at the bottom of page 21 the machine reveals Clark Kent is Superman and this does two things first of all it again breaks down what exactly is so effective about Clark Kent in his disguise during this era of of the burn age that no one really had any reason to think that Superman even had a secret identity. He didn't wear a mask and so most people assumed that he was just Superman full time. So Amanda says, oh my goodness, that would never have occurred to me. And yet, given the body of evidence, it's so logical. It's so flawlessly logical. She never once considered the possibility that Superman might spend his time as somebody else. And she's a believer. She buys this right away. This is an easy thing for her to convince herself of. 
Lex, not so much. Again, Lex is a hedonist. And this is one of those times when his hedonism and his amorality and his obsession for power actually work against him. He can't convince himself that there's any possibility that somebody with Superman's kind of power could ever be happy pretending to be a normal human being. There's just no way. Power like this is to always be used to do something. And that says, I think, more about who Lex Luthor is than it does... And actually, you know what? When you think about it, it actually says a lot about who Clark is. That, you know, Clark isn't constantly exploiting his abilities and always looking for ways to get ahead. You know? That, that is, without a doubt, what Lex would do. You know, God forbid Lex Luthor ever gets Superman's powers. Guys, I shudder to fucking think. The world wouldn't be safe. And you know what? Actually, I just want to put this all on pause for just a minute to say right here on page 22, panel 4, the camera, quote-unquote, is kind of doing this sort of gradual push-in into a close-up of Lex Luthor, but right here in panel 4, Lex says, to a machine, perhaps. And he kind of looks like Lawrence Tierney, who was, for those of you who don't know who that is, he was in Reservoir Dogs. He was basically Joe in Reservoir Dogs and, you know, the big crime boss, the old man. And I can't help thinking, is or was Lawrence Tierney some sort of an inspiration for Lex Luthor? Because, I mean, his, the shape of his nose, the shape of his mouth, his brow, everything about Lex in this panel, he just reminds me of Lawrence Tierney. So, just makes me wonder. Was that some sort of an influence on John Byrne? And I don't know the answer to that. But that's, every time I've ever seen this panel, that's always what I think of. Lawrence Tierney. That's just who he reminds me of. So, anyway. It's just weird. So, anyway. So, Lex basically loses his shit over all of this. And basically says that there's no way he could ever be content pretending to be a normal human being. You're an idiot. You're, in fact, you're not just an idiot. You're a fucking retard. And you're fired. Get out. I, I can't even stand to look at you. You make me sick. So, you know, you got to think. On the one hand, Amanda McCoy has got to be secretly relieved. You know? Considering what Lex has done to her, how could she not, on some level or another, be secretly happy that she got fired? Because now she's free. She's out from under his thumb. On the one hand. But on the other hand, I think she knows what this means for her career. And so that's maybe bad news. But what I can say, for those of you who aren't all that conversant with the Burn Age Superman and what happens with all of this, this is a big deal. Guys, this doesn't get swept under the rug and forgotten about. Amanda McCoy basically discovered in this issue that Clark Kent is Superman, and she believes it. She's not going to let that go. Be sure of that. And this becomes a, quite a big deal later on in the Burn Age uh, Superman's run, but that's later in the Burn Age Superman's run. And the here and now, though, that's really way out of scope for this particular issue. Let me just say, though, I dig this issue. I've, you know, literally from, not so, I mean, like, even when I was a kid, you know, when I had a copy of this issue when I was six years old, I really liked it. But when I came back to it and bought another copy to replace the one that got lost, when I bought a second copy as when I was uh, 12, This issue speaks so clearly to who Lex Luthor is as a character, and it does it by showing you who Lex is, you know? You don't have panel after panel where Lex tells you who he is. No, you fucking see it. It's on this page. He kills at least three people in this issue. He endangers three other people's lives, 
And on some level or another, he's now made it clear to Superman, someday I'm going to use this kryptonite to kill you. I'm going to, I'm coming for you. And when I come for you, I'm coming for blood. I'm going to fucking kill you, you know? And I don't know. Like I say, I mean, I, I think it's a defensible interpretation of this issue that this is really more of a more of a, a, a Lex Luthor story than it is a Superman story. Because when you come right down to it, Superman is only really on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. He's on eleven pages, and he never even shows up until halfway through this issue. The plot developments, the characters, the action, the the story developments, everything that happens in this issue is propelled in some way or another by Lex Luthor. Superman is really more of a bystander in that respect. And I don't know. This is just this is an amazingly good issue. Guys, you can if you don't already have a copy of it, it's been reprinted in trade paperbacks I can't even hope to count. And you can also probably find even the original the original issue probably for I would imagine dirt cheap. Guys, pick this up. It's worth it. This is one of the great Lex Luthor stories. It's a little creepy in parts, I'll admit. You know, basically anything to do with his date with Amanda McCoy is, I think, pretty fucking sick. But it still speaks to, you know, who Lex is as a character. And so in relation to that, I still think it's it's good writing. You know, it's good writing. So hopefully that makes sense. But anyway, so that I think is pretty much it for me. Uh, this week so basically what I'm going to do is next week you know what I haven't actually completely decided what I'm going to talk about next week at least not yet so I think I'm just going to keep that under my hat for the time being but I think that's pretty much it for me this week though so bye everybody I will see you next week This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at Relatively Geeky Podcast blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, 
but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy. Mm-hmm.